Friends, if you have a Bible, would you please grab it and turn with me to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. We're in a series on the Lord's Prayer. We're learning together during Advent what it means to pray, how to be people of prayer, how to find a sense of consistency in our prayer life, how to have a sense of what does it mean as Christians who stand outside the hypocrisy against which Jesus so fervently preached to pray as sons and daughters. We've looked at what it means to pray as sons and daughters. We looked at what it means to pray like Jesus. We've looked at what it means to pray out of our own need. And now this morning we look to see what does it mean to pray as forgiven sinners. And if you would, would you stand with me for the reading this morning? It comes from Matthew chapter 6. I'm going to read from verses 5 down through 15. Friends, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but God's holy and inspired and errant word, it stands forever. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Father, would you take your holy, inerrant, inspired word and would you change our hearts? Would you massage our hearts? Would you open our hearts to believe you and to trust you at your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Robert and Dan were two brothers who grew up in an oil boom town. They were the son of a very, very wealthy, young, entrepreneurial wildcatter in the 30s and 40s. They went off to the University of Texas. I know, I know. Some people just make horrible mistakes. And they came back. And when they came back, they were three years apart. When they came back from college, they both were working in their, their separate uh, careers. Their father died of a heart attack very suddenly. And Rob and Dan and all the family gathered and they mourned the death of this beloved man who had raised them and who was so successful in their family. Their mother mourned his death as she obviously would. And they too grieved their father's death, but their grief was short-lived because it dawned on them that they were going to have to give up their respective careers to man their father's oil business. 
And you see, Rob and Dan had always butted heads ever since they were little boys. And here they were handed this large company with many employees, lots of wells to be responsible for. And so they decided that they would do what is typical of brothers who don't like each other. They would split the company down the center, 50-50. So they each took their share, except they both had attorneys, and in closed doors, those attorneys fought for their respective sides, and both brothers thought the other brother got the better deal. And their wives began to nip at each other, and their, and their young children began to distance themselves from their cousins. And Rob and Dan decided that they were going to have a moratorium on their communication for one month. One month. Let things settle down, brother. Let's not speak for one month and just let things chill. They got to the end of the one month and they felt like, well, this is working pretty good. And so they continued on with no silence, with no communication between the two brothers for 55 years. We've seen over the past three weeks in Advent that Jesus shows us how to pray as a people. And he gives us six petitions of prayer, three Godward, three manward, three about God's glory and kingdom and will, three pointed toward heaven, and three about man's utter need, our daily bread, our forgiveness of sins, our protection from temptation. Points us heavenward and points us earthward. Shows us the glory of the Father and shows us our utter need for our daily bread, our utter need for the things of life. But isn't it interesting, friends, that of the six petitions of the Lord's Prayer that Jesus gives to the disciples, only one merits commentary from Jesus himself. Which one of those six petitions does Jesus comment on? The fifth, forgiveness. Why is that? It's because forgiveness is central to our integrity as Christians. And forgiveness is central to the good news that we herald to the world. It is central to our integrity, and it is central to the good news that we herald to the world. Remember who Jesus is speaking to. Yes, he's speaking to his disciples in the Sermon on the Mount. But on the outer skirts of this sermon, listening in with keen ears and eyes are who? They're the Pharisees. And who are the Pharisees? They are the martyrs of good works. Do you know what a martyr of good works is? It's somebody who's constantly reminding you of how hard he's working. Have you, have you noticed how many hours I put in this week for God? Have you seen how much I have spent time in my daily devotions? Like, I... Like, do you know how many podcasts I've listened to this week? I mean, those are the kind of people who are martyrs for good works. They're, they give, they remind everybody how spiritual they are. They remind everybody how hard they work. And the Pharisees were saying, listen, like, we are the ones doing everything for God. We've made up all of these 600 plus rules of the Old Testament. And we're keeping them very dutifully. But don't, I'm not going to bother with you now, Psst, Gentile, you dog, as they would refer to them. If you need me, I'll be over here on the street corner praying. And Jesus says to his disciples, brothers, you cannot be like those 
Because hypocrisy, hypocrisy in your heart creates for you a crust that does not allow you to forgive very easily. Because at the heart of these Pharisees was an unforgiving spirit. And it was so much so that Jesus interrupted his teaching on prayer before he talks to them about fasting. And he says, before I go on, let me tell you that if you do not forgive your brother, your father in heaven will not forgive you. Forgiveness is central to our integrity as Christians, and it is central to the good news that we herald to the world. First, it's central to the integrity that we have as Christians. When Matthew is writing down Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, right, Matthew and Luke both write down the Sermon on the Mount. When Matthew is writing it, what do you think Matthew decided to put at the very center of the Sermon on the Mount? But Jesus is teaching on prayer, the Lord's Prayer. And what, mind you, did Matthew put at the very center of the Lord's Prayer? The fifth petition about forgive us of our debts as we forgive our debtors. So here in the very center of the most famous sermon in the world, in the midst of the most famous prayer in the world, is the nature of forgiveness. Does that cut you? I know your stories and you know mine. And if we are going to be the gospel to Owasso, to Tulsa, to Northeast Oklahoma, friends, listen to me. I beg of you, and you help me too. We've got to be people who are forgiving. The word that Jesus uses here in Greek, for when he says in verse 14, and if you forgive others their trespasses, is actually a softer word. It is literally the word for slip-ups. It is the word for moral slips. Jesus says, if you don't forgive your brother or your sister for their moral slips, how can your Father in heaven forgive you of your devastating moral falls? They slipped up. You crashed and burned. Look, they had a, they had a, they had a, a, a moral, exp- they, they messed up. Yes, they made a mistake. You're in spiritual bankruptcy, bro. Jesus knew that it would be the disciples' tendency and your own tendency to exaggerate other people's sins and under-exaggerate your own. And Jesus says, oh, friends, please, if you're going to be people of integrity, if you're going to reflect me and my character, you've got to be people who know how to forgive. Forgiveness might just be the greatest gift you can give and receive this Christmas. In 1957, Martin Luther King Jr. delivered a speech at Dexter Avenue Baptist Church in Montgomery after the Montgomery bus boycott. He was imprisoned. He actually wrote this sermon when he was in prison. But he says, forgiveness does not mean ignoring what has been done or putting a false label on an evil act. It means rather that the act no longer remains as a barrier to the relationship, a prison house. Forgiveness is a catalyst for creating an atmosphere necessary for a fresh start and a new beginning. It is the lifting of a burden. It is the canceling of a debt. 
at the heart of our own witness, of our own, our own calling as disciples of Jesus Christ. It is our responsibility to forgive. And more than that, as Martin Luther King Jr. brings out, forgiveness, and you've seen this in your own life, is actually a catalyst for love and for starting afresh with somebody for whom you have for a very long time, perhaps, held in judgment. Romans 12, 14 through 18 says, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live with harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be unwise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. The Christian counselor Tim Lane says that when you fail to forgive someone else, the victim becomes the victimizer. And without intending for this to happen, listen, I've seen this in my own life, and I know that's certainly true of many of yours. Without intending for this to happen, what was once a horrible offense against you, if you do not learn to forgive, to heal, to go through counseling, to process that, you begin to become the victimizer and you remind that person in every way that you can of how badly they hurt you. Now, whenever, whenever I'm listening to sermons, I always want to ask the preachers, okay, like give me some examples, some case studies. This is sometimes a little hard conceptually and theoretically to get. So let's talk about some case studies, for example. In the Bible, in 2 Samuel chapter 15, we meet a man whose name is Ahithophel. Funny-sounding name, I know, but there it is, Ahithophel. And he had a granddaughter. Do you know who his granddaughter was? Ahithophel's son was a man named Eliam, and Eliam's daughter was a very beautiful woman whose name was Bathsheba. And King David saw Bathsheba one day when he was on his balcony, and he brought her into his chambers. And he took the woman who was another man's wife. And then he went and he had her husband killed. And David, friends, committed a horrible, atrocious sin. And in Psalm 32, you, you hear the psychological tension in David's heart when David says, when I was silent about my sin, my bones wearied within me as through the heat of summer. And then I confess my sins to you and you forgave the guilt of my sin. David, a man who had committed a horrible, offensive crime against both Bathsheba and yes, her family, she killed her. he killed her husband, knew what forgiveness meant. He knew what it meant. But you know who never learned what forgiveness meant? The grandfather of the woman he took to be his wife. Because Ahithophel watched this whole thing happen. And when you get to 2 Samuel chapter 15, who was David's chief counselor at his side? His name was Ahithophel. And when David's son, Absalom, revolts against his father, the first one to sign up to join Absalom's side is who? Ahithophel. And here's Ahithophel who is taking the side of this rebellious son, Absalom, 
as a way to get back at this young, adulterous murderer of a king who he's never forgiven. And Absalom, in his administration, receives Ahithophel's wisdom, and he receives the wisdom of another man, and Absalom decides to take this wisdom, not of Ahithophel, but of another counselor to him. And Ahithophel, just like with David, is so cut that Absalom would not take his wisdom. Don't you know who I am? Don't you know how wise I am? I mean, don't you know how many books I've read? Come on, Absalom. You take this advice from some young lieutenant and you don't take my, I just left the king to come give you wisdom. And it says in 1 Samuel chapter 17 that Ahithophel went and he hung himself and his body was laid in the tomb of his forefathers. David knew something about forgiveness. Ahithophel, who from all outward appearances never committed murder, treason maybe, but never committed adultery, couldn't forgive David in his heart. And it drove him to suicide. And in Psalm 41, verse 9, it says that my friend accuses me and denies me. And in Psalm 41, who is King David thinking of? He's thinking of his friend Ahithophel. And in John 13, when Jesus looks at Judas, who was not able to forgive Jesus for whatever peccadillo, whatever small wrong that may have been done to him, who does John record Jesus is quoting? But Psalm 41, my friend has turned his back on me. He has denied me. And Judas, just like Ahithophel, did what? He found a tree and he hung himself. Friends, when you're a victim of an offense, your temptation is to grieve, and that is the right emotion to feel. But the temptation through that grief will take you to harden your heart and to move you from being someone who grieves the offense, who absorbs the blow, yes, but begins to victimize other people with that. Case study number one is David and Ahithophel and the differences in the way they approached forgiveness. Case study number two, Joseph. You all know the story of Joseph in Genesis. If you don't, here it is, the Cliff Notes version. Joseph was a young man who was honored by his father. He was one of many brothers. You remember the story. His brothers decided, hey, it'd be a fun thing to take Joseph's coat of many colors and to put him in a pit and let's sell him into slavery. So they did. They left him to die. Slaves, uh, slave traders came along, picked him up, took him, eventually sold him off into slavery in Egypt where he rose up through the ranks of Pharaoh's cabinet to become Pharaoh's right-hand man. And you can read years later where Joseph, who had his life utterly, utterly transformed by the work of these conniving brothers, is the one who is the prime minister of Egypt, who receives his brother in the midst of famine as his brothers come to him begging for food. And this is what Moses writes 
of what happened. Genesis 45, then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him, his brothers. He hadn't seen them in many years. He cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him except uh, with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him for they were dismayed at his presence. Joseph said to his brothers, I hate you for what, that's not what he says. Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. There it is. That's what forgiveness is. Bringing someone near to you. And they came near and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into slavery. He names the sin. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years. And there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. And it goes on and it says that Joseph blesses them. He says, I will provide for you. For there are yet five years coming that are going to be hard with famine, so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. (laughs) What did Joseph do? Joseph said to his brothers, brothers, I forgive you. Forgiveness, friends, is not forgetting something. Joseph didn't forget what what had happened to him. He named it. But forgiveness is a process by which you come to the point of canceling a debt. Forgiveness is not an apology. Forgiveness is naming that sin. It is going to that person and asking forgiveness for that sin. And it is the person who is forgiving them to make a promise. That's what forgiveness is. It is a promise, a threefold promise that says, number one, I will not bring this offense up again to use it against you. The only reason I address this offense is for the purpose of reconciliation and not vengeance. That's what Joseph shows us. Second, he, I will not gossip or malign you because of this offense. This is where we need counsel to help us handle the offense, especially when it's been so um, offensive to us. Listen, I know some of you have been offended to such a degree that it is extremely hard not to malign them in your heart. And there is a process of counseling that is very important for you to go through to help process that forgiveness so that you're able to not only stop maligning them in your heart, you're able to stop maligning them in public, you're able to stop victimizing them, and you're able to come out of the jail cell that is your unforgiving spirit and to walk free. This is not easy. This is no pie in the sky religion here. 
I will not bring this up against you or use it again, again or use it against you. I will not gossip or malign you because of this offense. Thirdly, the hardest for me, probably for you, I will not dwell on this offense. I will not bring it up against you except for the purpose of reconciliation. I will not malign you. I will not dwell on this offense. Case study number one, David, who was able to leave his offense at the foot of the cross and be reconciled to God. Ahithophel, who could not let it go, and it drove him to suicide. Joseph, who had every right to turn the knife on his brothers, didn't. He refused to malign them. In fact, in public, he blessed them, didn't he, by bringing them into his house. Now, it's great to think about these things that happened many, many years ago. But what about today? What about like your own life now? I know some of you deal with this in the context of your own family, and it's hard. Joseph did too. And you know who else did? Jesus. Because at that cross, Jesus says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And in the solidarity that he he has had with his Father and the Holy Spirit for all eternity, his Father turned his back on his Son. The sky went dark, and Jesus took on all of your unforgiving spirit upon himself and all of mine. Forgiveness might just be the best gift you and I can receive this Christmas. Earlier this year, there was um, a woman whose name was Eva Kaur. There's a picture of her. Eva was a woman who, um, when she was 10 years old, was brought to Auschwitz in the Nazi concentration camps. She was um, a twin. And her sister Miriam and Eva were brought to Auschwitz at a very, very young age. And because they were twins, they were sought out as different and special for Joseph Mingle, the great doctor of the Nazi regime who took thousands of twins and treated them differently to test what happened to them biochemically. Eva and her sister were um, subjected to incredibly, incredibly uh, uh, inhumane torture. There was a time, Eva said, when she was um, a young teenager when she could not even get a drink of water from those who helped her at the hospital. And so with sores from her head to toe, she crawled, she says, she crawled with just her hands because her feet didn't work, she couldn't use her legs, to the water fountain to try to get a glass of water. There is a bookkeeper of Auschwitz who's very famous these days, you may have heard of him. His name is Oscar Gruning. Oscar was the one who was in charge of keeping tabs on everything that, was, that came into the camp, all the luggage, every pair of shoes, every bit of money that he found in the luggage from the Jews and from the Europeans, even from some of the Americans that were in Auschwitz. And Eva Kor learned that Oscar Gruning was still alive. And even though she had never met him, in her eyes, he stood for all of the unspeakable evil that possibly could come. And Eva Kaur decided that she would travel and see this man who at 93 years old, she was 83. <laughs> she decided that she would go and she would see him. And at the moment when they met, 
Oscar Gruning, Saul Young, Eva Kor, and he stood up to try to greet her. And because he was frail and used a walker, he tried to show her with every ounce of respect he could by standing. He fell. And the orderlies picked him up, picked this frail old man up. And Eva Kor walked up to this man who was responsible for notating all the atrocities. And she said to him, I want you to know that I have been imprisoned since being freed from Auschwitz. The Soviets came to free me, she says in her biography, but I entered a whole new system of concentration camps called unforgiveness. And at 83 years old, I'm here to tell you one old person to another that I forgive you. And Oscar Gruning grabbed Eva and he kissed her on the cheek and she wept on his shoulder as forgiveness took place. You can read much about Eva's story in a book that she wrote called The Forgiveness of Dr. Mingle. Dr. Mingle was the one who was responsible for all the atrocities that happened at Auschwitz. Friends, forgiveness is hard and nobody here is making the suggestion that it's not. But it's precisely for that reason that Jesus, when he gives us the Lord's Prayer, pulls out one of those petitions and he gives commentary on it. Because not only is it essential, central to your integrity as Christians, it is secondly, and even as importantly, central to the good news that we herald to the world. What we proclaim to the world is that Jesus Christ forgives us of our sin. That Jesus Christ, when he was on the cross, took upon your shame and, on, and mine, upon himself, so that he might, as Isaiah says, bear our sins, as John says, take away our sins, as Daniel says in Daniel 9, remove our sins and remember them no more. Jesus never forgets. He's God. He doesn't forget. He's got a perfect memory. But he makes a covenant promise to you and to me. He says, I will remember your sins no more. Forgetting is passive. You just forget. You can't recall it. But not remembering is active. It's very important to make that distinction. And when you extend forgiveness to somebody, you're making a covenant not to remember that sin. To use it against them, to malign them, to dwell on it yourself. Forgiveness just might be for you and me the greatest gift that we can give this Christmas. Forgiveness, friends, is a promise. It is a process, yes, but it is a process. It is a promise. And you and I get to experience the beautiful side of that exchange if you're in Christ. And if you are in Christ, then the clarion call for you and for me, just like it was for Martin Luther King Jr. in the midst of the civil rights movement, just like it was for Ahithophel who denied forgiveness and ended up taking his own life, as it was for David who learned it, as it was for Joseph who demonstrated it, as it was for your Savior who forgives you and never uses it against you. 
so also you are to extend forgiveness to those you love. Can we do that? In your own strength, you cannot. But when you remember again the glories of the gospel, that Jesus does not use your sin against you, he chooses not to remember because of the covenant relationship that he's made with you. He does not malign you before the Father in heaven. In fact, what is he doing right now? He is praising you before his Father. He is representing you as holy and blameless before him. And Jesus is not dwelling on it because he took it once for all at the cross. In history, the debt was paid. Do you believe that? Friends, that is the good news of Christmas. Forgiveness just might be the greatest gift you, you and I can give and receive this Christmas. Do you see Jesus' love for you? Oh, let's run to him. Let's pray. Father, would you help us to be people who forgive because we have been forgiven so much. Father, forgive us of our debts even as we forgive our debtors. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. There are many things that are easy to forget um, when you are a minister of the word. And sometimes those things that you forget are the ways you began sermons and you leave people hanging on what happened to people like Dan and Robert. So I'm going to tell you what happened to him. Dan is 83 years old. Robert is 80. And they realized that though they grew up with their families, they even built houses on the same street, though they never talked, their wives began to speak peaceably to each other, their children even before that. And they decided that they would get their families together. Now, not three, but four generations who had all been affected by this rift. And they would go to the exact same room where this conversation began. It was at a country club. And they would bring people together. So they flew their family in from Nashville and from Austin. And they met. And the Presbyterian minister, who they both went to church with and was their minister for 30 of those five decades, 30 years of those 50, the five decades they didn't speak, brought their family together. And Rob and Dan expressed forgiveness to each other for the way that they had um, robbed their families of the joy of knowing the other side. And um, as you might guess, how there were many tears shed, and it was a beautiful moment, so much so that the local paper picked up on the whole story, which is how I found out about it. And the Presbyterian minister, as you might guess, ended their time, how? By praying together, and how do you think he led them in prayer? By saying the Lord's Prayer. And so we're going to say that together as you prepare for the supper this morning, but I want you to use Matthew chapter 6. We'll add the ending to the Lord's Prayer that we commonly know, but use the scripture that you see in Matthew chapter 6, if you don't know the Lord's Prayer, to pray the Lord's Prayer together with me as we prepare for the Lord's table. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. 
Amen. Will you pray that prayer, friends? No matter if it's on a football field or with your family over dinner or at church, you're declaring reconciliation amongst yourselves in the world.